Hello and welcome to Zero Today. I'm your humble host, Pastor Lorenzo Neal, hailing from Cajun Land, USA, here to present you with seeds of wisdom, insight, empowerment, and liberation. We are promoting a knowledge that is engaging and transforming, and we are here to help you, our listeners, to know and impact the world around us. And as always, you're welcome to join us on this illuminating journey. There's several ways you can do so. Um, you can always, on the live broadcast, you can call in um, and get your thoughts, insights on the air. That's 347-237-5231-5230, excuse me. And uh, get in contact with us on any of our social media. Follow us on our Facebook page, Zero Network on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. The show handle is at Zero Radio. And my personal handle is at Lorenzo T. Neal. Also, you can send us an email at uh, PastorLorenzoNeal at gmail.com. Any other places we may be, uh, you're welcome to join us on that. We're glad that we are able to share this show with you. And we're glad that you are tuning in. And each and every time we do so, we're hoping that this is benefiting you, empowering you, and liberating you to go out and do all that God wants you to do. So today we're going to be talking about a few things. I want to talk about um, the plague of suicide that is happening. Uh, Well, I want to call it the plague, but trauma and suicide, the connection between the two death by suicide and also i want to speak on um truth and integrity regarding our church and well not just church our society truth and integrity altogether as we wrestle with this idea of absolute truth in its purest uh sense what is truth how do we know what truth is who's telling the truth how can we trust sources that we hear and we get from so that's what we're going to be talking about today but i want to start off um by sending our condolences to the families of those um victims of parkland uh shooting um we have two student survivors who took their lives by uh suicide and a father of a a child First grader killed in Newtown shooting in 2012, who also took his life by suicide. Uh, And what we're finding and what we know the evidence supports this is traumatic events um, oftentimes carry a different type of grief. When a person who uh, has a loved one who dies by violent death, be it by gun violence or death by suicide, and it is very traumatic. Uh, as a survivor of gun violence, I know. I, uh, actually, I've had three loved ones directly, uh, three immediate family members: my mother, my brother, and my nephew killed in acts of violence. My mother and nephew were killed in acts of violence that involved a gun. My brother Emmanuel was killed in 2010 in an act of violence that involved the stabbing. And um, I think the easiest one for me to deal with um, was the death of my mother because I was so young and I wasn't really, you know, I didn't understand the trauma that accompanied with that. And I had great support system with her parents, my grandmother, my grandfather, her sisters, my aunts, um, and a wonderful village who who helped us I mean all of the parents all of the grandparents on my block you know uh, that's just the truth all the all of the adults contributed to the welfare and well-being of all of the children on our block in our neighborhood pretty much within a three three four block radius you know parents knew who children people were so I could walk around. I could walk three blocks from my house, and and the, the 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 ladies in particular, and the men too. They knew my grandfather very well. But the ladies would know. Like I shouldn't be out if it's if it was getting dusk time for dusk lights come on. They knew, and they would they'd be on the phone with my to my grandmother's house. And before I knew it, you know, I'd be they'd be waiting on me when I get home. But I had a wonderful village that um. 
supplemented the the care for me and the um in raising me that helped me and my uh, brothers cope with the trauma now my brother Emmanuel probably was the he he was the one who uh had the most difficulty in childhood uh he was the one who acted out the most and put it that way um and so because he acted out the most um he um he had some issues but the lord uh the lord and he he and the lord got it together before he passed um so i didn't really deal with the trauma of my mother's death i i didn't know i don't really think i was affected by that until um my young adulthood and that's when i began to see the symptoms of the ptsd from uh, my mother's death i had been pretty much shielded from that through a lot of activity um but in 2010 when my brother was killed now i was already i i was about to turn 30 or 30 35 i was about to turn 35 yeah 35 (laughs) and um his death by way of stabbing really that's when I really experienced a deep depression and a deep sense of guilt um, or survivor's guilt from his death. And I, I, I was really even I was pastoring, I was working, and um, I was deeply traumatized by his death. And um, I didn't act out. As far as I can recall, I may have, but um, I didn't do anything stupid. Let me put it that way. I'm quite sure I acted um, advertently. You know, I, I'm quite sure that I did some things irrationally, but they weren't over. You know, wasn't over the top. But I I dealt with the trauma of how he died, and the guilt of not being there when he died for uh, for a long time. For, for a long time actually uh, up until um, no I can't even say up until I still deal with that it's just not as great as it once was um, after his death I, while I did not contemplate suicide I had a very deep sense of loss um, altogether holistically I had a deep sense of loss loss in um Lost not just because he was my brother, but lost in the sense of I went to the hospital. I prayed with him. He was looking as if he would recover, though it, you know he may have lived in a vegetative state. Um, I prayed with him, and when we left the hospital after I prayed with him, not long after that he, you know, he passed away, and I wrestled with that idea. My prayer was not effective. My prayer was effortless. My prayer was powerless. And um, and so I wrestled with that, that sense of loss. I also wrestled with the sense of loss of not being there. Because I was, the intent was to be there the day he was stabbed. I was on my way home to attend an event. And I talked with him and my other brother, Joshua, and my grandparents let them know that I was going to be there that Wednesday. And, and then when Wednesday came, I wasn't feeling well. And so because I was not feeling well, I did not go home that day. And later that evening, he was stabbed. And I felt horrible. Because in my mind, I was thinking I could have prevented that event from happening. Of course, that that was irrational, but that is what I was thinking. I was thinking if only I had been there when I said I would be there, I could have prevented. He could have been with me, and he could have done this, and we could have done that. And all of the events foreshadowing and leading up to his demise were preventable if I had been there. And, of course, that was not the truth. That's not the truth. Um, and I, I dealt with, and I wrestled with that. I struggled with it. Um, for a number of years, and uh, as I stated earlier, it's not as great as it once was, but it's still present, and I'm still aware that those emotions and those uh, uh, those thoughts are still there. But I've learned how to manage them in a in a way that 
do not overwhelm me, which I'm grateful for. But I also dealt with the loss of uh, a sense of loss spiritually. I was pastoring, and um, I preached my brother's funeral. <laughs> and from what I was told, um, even now, I go home and persons, they remember that eulogy, which is which is good for me. It's uh it's a bit sobering and sumpering for me, um, to know that I was able to do so and do so well. Um uh, but I had to go back to my church. I had to go back in ministry with that loss. And I was preaching. I was preaching. I was preaching and teaching and and doing ministry effectively. But I was lost. Um, was, I began to question God. I began to uh, question my ministry. I began to question the, the faith that I had uh, bought into. I, I, I did. I, I was becoming semi-skeptical. Uh, a skeptic, you know. I was doing all I could to justify my my feelings of loss, even if it meant leaving not just the ministry but the faith altogether. So I was I was there, I, I was there, and it did not. If it had not been for again another support system, um, this coming from church and um, the sense of need, I I was codependent in the sense. That I needed to be needed in ministry. Um, and that that was really driving me. And that is also what eventually saved me from the despair of the loss that I was feeling. Um, and so I, I was able to recover. But think about all of these, all of persons who were like myself, who experienced trauma. Whatever that trauma may have been. And they wrestled with that. Uh, in 2012, I was in a car accident, and um, um, I don't know if I really shared this story on air, but I was in a vehicle accident. I over uh, over medicated on insulin, um, unintentionally over medicating insulin. I had a, a, a glucometer that gave me the wrong reading for whatever reason, and uh, so I'm thinking my blood glucose was high. My sugar level was high, and it was not. And as I was driving on my way to a general conference in 2012 in Nashville, Tennessee, I passed out. And um, in passing out, I ran off the road, hit a tree head on. And I was about an hour outside Jackson, Mississippi. And the Lord spared my life and (laughs) didn't spare the life of the vehicle, though. (laughs) But he spared my life, and... and, um, um, I, and I was still able to make it to that general conference and do the work of the church as I had been uh, elected to do. When I got home, you know, I I was grateful, and not long thereafter, I, every time I passed up that way driving, I would get this sense of uh, fear, and I had anxiety after, and still suffer from anxiety as a result of that accident. Um, I, it, sometimes the anxiety attacks I have are so great, it's, it, it's paralyzing. But a um, um, couple of years later, a couple of years following that accident, there was a, a, a person involved in a very similar accident in around the same area that um, happened to me, where it happened to me, and that person did not survive. So I wrestled with survivor's guilt. Um, matter of fact, anytime I hear of a of a car accident, anytime I hear of a car accident, I wrestle with survivor's guilt. The idea that I survived what should have been a deadly accident, and there's some persons who do not survive, and that that contributes to both my anxiety and the sense of loss and trauma. But those persons, like uh, the parent in of New, the Newtown student who was killed. And the two students from Parkland who um, took their lives by way of suicide. 
they both experienced, they all experienced trauma. The father overwhelmingly feeling the sense of loss of his only child, he and his wife's only child. And I can't imagine it. I know my brother can imagine it. My brother lost his only child, my nephew, Kevin Jr., in 2016 to an act of gun violence. And uh, I see how they are affected by that. His only son, not his only child, I'm sorry, but his only son with his wife. Um, and, and the father grief, that, that father's grief was so overwhelming, even now, seven years after the event happened. Think about that. And, and those students wrestling with the survivor's guilt, the fact that they survived and their schoolmates did not. Um, it, 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 it is, it can be emotionally overwhelming, even with the best support system. And as a therapist and counselor, pastoral counselor, I, I have to remind myself that while the church and while the ministry is, um, is effective in providing great care and a sense of community and a sense of support, um, we cannot always fulfill that role. Um, we can't always see it come to fruition, full fruition, because sometimes it's, it can be just overwhelming to the individual, even with a support system. Um, and that, that's what grieves me the most when I think about this. And also, we're seeing higher rates of death by suicide in the black community, and black males in particular, uh, well, again, there's a greater sense of despondency for whatever reason um, that we see in the black community. And black males are, 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 again, we black males, we are affected more and greatly to a greater degree than uh, any other uh, culture, any other um, any other percentage of any, uh, population. And a lot of things, heart disease, uh, death by cancer and prostrating colon, and, of course, uh, death by way of violent homicide. We, we, we are high in those areas. But now we're seeing a rise in death by suicide in black men for whatever reason. And we saw just recently with the high-profile death of Young and restless star, I can't think of his name. Um, but when he committed suicide, uh, when he, I, oh, I love it, I used the word committed, when he uh, took his life by way of suicide because he was still grieving the loss of his son. Think about that. It, it, it's a tragic, and, and, and sometimes, in some ways, I believe the black church and the black church. Because we don't speak to these issues as pastors and we don't um, bring this into our voice. We don't bring our voice into this conversation or we don't even have the conversation. Uh, we're seeing black men who are experiencing trauma, both great and small. And that trauma uh, creates this sense of loss, this sense of devalue. This this sense of uh, angst and all the other things you could probably think of in a ne negative emotional spectrum. And black men, we are already emotionally unhealthy. Uh, we are we're taught to be reactionary as black as black men from as early as boys. You know, we're taught we have to be tough. We're not supposed to be cry. We're supposed to be reacting. We have to react. That's our responsibility. As as boys coming into men, that we are to be reactionary. We got to be strong and we got to be ready to fight at all times. And, and as, <laughs> as one said, we got to fight the power. And um, of course, that can go several ways. But we're seeing this and 
we must begin to address this in our community. The idea of death by suicide across the board is 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 very tragic. And I know in some cultures there's this this uh, mythos of the the suicide pact or suicide is honorable. Matter of factly, we have it in scripture. When you read the scripture and the story of Saul, uh, who basically uh, took his own life or had his servant, or uh, I don't know if it's, yeah, servant, well, he had someone take his life, you know. So it was suicide by proxy in a way with uh, King Saul, and you can read that. And then you read about David's reaction upon learning that Saul had died by, at the hand, uh, at the request of death by his own sword. And had <laughs> had the man who killed Saul, Saul killed. <laughs> Boy, that was that that David was something. Um, anyway, so we hear of that, and we hear and we read of the prophets, uh, several prophets in the Old Testament, who experiences great moments of depression and the the spoken request for death by suicide. Although not carrying out the act. You know the prophet uh, Elijah said. I should have been dead. I should be dead. I'm not worthy. And of course the prophet Jonah sat under the tree depressed. After carrying out um, the command of God. To to preach repentance to this group. And so so we, we are aware that death by suicide. Has been existing for a long time. And that does not negate. The fact that we still must be. Engaging. This phenomenon. That we must address it. And that it is preventable. We should not allow a person to suffer in silence. If we know that that silence can be prevented. Can uh, you know we can provide a voice. (coughs) Excuse me. We can provide a voice to that silence. We should not allow them to suffer in silence. And um, there are plenty of opportunities now. There are crisis centers. There's the suicide hotline that you can call. And um, I'll, I'll include this information. Um, I already have it on my personal Facebook page. So you can go there and you can get that information. But um, there, are, there are ways. And we should be helping we should be uh we should be giving our voice to this conversation as a black community um while those persons who uh we we seeing oh yeah and I didn't, I didn't even talk about the children recently uh that have made headlines because they they had death by suicide as young as 9 and 6 years old because of bullying and the teenagers, the black teenagers, the black children who are uh, taking their lives. It is, we shouldn't wait for it to be to the level of epidemic before we react. We need to be proactive. As proactive as we can. Because if we are not, what we will see will be an increase in this act not just in the black community, but across the span of uh, all communities in uh, the yes, the yes, <laughs> the U.S. United States. Oh boy, I'm having fun this morning. I had my coffee. I had my coffee right here, actually. Maybe I should take a step. Uh, a step. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with me and my vocabulary this morning. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I'm just having a bit fun. But anyway, so um, we said, listen to your prayers. Let me pull up the information again for the National Suicide Hotline so that you can. Um, um, and and you can get that information. The, if, if you or someone you know is showing symptoms of depression, showing symptoms of extreme depression and trauma, 
and they you feel they may be at risk for death by suicide, you need to call the crisis line. And that number is 1-800-273-8255. 800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Crisis Line. You should call that. Um, and you can you can do it online. They you know you can go online and and chat. Also, encourage persons you know to seek out counseling. Uh, if they're in the church, encourage them to seek out pastoral counseling. Um, I do offer pastoral counseling, um, not just to my members, but it is a full-fledged counseling uh, center, and you know we we are trained in that and models of, of counseling that will be effective and uh, fervent and we believe will be helping, transformative, empowering, and liberating for you. So you can contact me if you need to at 601-355-8017. Um, That's the number you can call if you'd like to schedule a session with me uh, and we'll be able to help you with that. We want to change lives and we want to save lives. So that's the way we can do that. We're going to segue now to, and I'm sounding so serious, but it's a very serious topic. This this is a very serious topic. And uh, I I would approach it with humor. um, But as I have been affected by this, even though I have not uh, taken I have not had the option, you know, or considered the option of death by suicide. I feel like it a whole lot sometimes. <laughs> I feel like I should be. <laughs> uh, no, just kidding. No. Um, we all experience those moments. But uh, we we need to, uh, for those who are suffering in silence, we want to get them help. So now let's segue into this other issue that I wanted to talk about and this is the issue of truth and how can we trust truth in this world today who's telling the truth I took some little swag of my coffee there um we 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 hear and heard the news today well not today but recently of the Mueller report, um, Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller's report regarding um, the investigation into collusion and the broad, broad, broadness of the accusations of Russian involvement, engagement, and the Trump campaign campaign uh, collusion with the Russian government, and of course, the findings. Uh, suggest that there was no evidence for collusion, and so he was exonerated. The campaign was exonerated, not Trump himself. Uh, I don't believe uh, President Trump himself was being investigated, but his campaign was being investigated. And of course, they did make several arrests in regarding to the campaign, and, uh, and so and so it is. But regarding the actual act of collusion. There's little ev- little to no evidence suggesting that there was. Um, so, and Mr. President, uh, Mr. President Trump, has uh, has been doing his victory lap in regards to celebrating the fact that he was found exonerated. Of course, the word there is <laughs> it's up for debate as to what. Um, as far as exoneration from obstruction charges, that is, that is in um, ambiguity, ambiguity, ambiguity. <laughs> that is ambiguous and um, indeterminate, and so we're just kind of left in limbo with that. And then we have the other story of Mr. Jesse Smollett, or however you say his name. Who has been not exonerated, but charges have been dropped against him regarding uh, what has been described as a false hate crime report. 
And if you watch the news, you saw how he felt vindicated, and um, you saw how the Chicago, the city of Chicago, and particularly the police force and the mayor, feel in regard to how they still feel he is he is guilty. But anyway, um, I, I just wanted to address this those two issues because those two issues both surround the idea of truth who's telling the truth and what is the truth now i'm not getting in i'm not even going to go into a theological framework of this but i'm going just from a um a framework of of how we trust sources of the truth um and um, how those sources are then framed, how that truth is then framed within uh, in such a way to persuade us to believe one thing or another. And, um, if you're not aware, I am a I'm on the board of Intentional Insight, the Advisory Board of Intentional Insight. And that is a global organization that um, is the creator of the Pro-Truth Pledge. And if you are not aware of the Pro-Truth Pledge, I'm going to give you an opportunity to go there and visit uh, it, the website, uh, Pro-Truth Pledge. And um, uh, that website is uh, protruthpledge.org. And um, I, I took... I took the pledge, and uh, I've written an article on the side on behalf of this pledge, and I am fully supportive of the idea that misinformation is is very dangerous, and um, misin misinformation contributes or has contributed to the. Incivility that we are experiencing across the spectrum of social media and uh, American discourse, politically, religiously, uh, socially. I, I, I believe that greatly that because of the, the easy spread of misinformation that more people are now gullible. To false truth. More people are now. Um, subject to being duped. And that's what happened in the 2016 election. We found uh, there was sufficient evidence to prove. That um, there were entities. Whether government. I mean Russian government. Whatever. Or private individuals. There was sufficient evidence to prove that there was a great uh, misinformation, misinformation influx into social media, particularly social uh, Facebook. Um, and of course, you can, you can go back and find out what happened with Facebook and the integrity of their site and you know, all the bias or whatever. Um, and we're seeing that now play out. In real time. But. Um, but what we see. What, what we what we know. The question is. How much do we know. About what we know. And that gets into a philosoph philosophical argument. Of knowledge. And, um, and I'm not trying to get into epistemological arguments here. Epistemological. Epistemology is the that's the philosophical branch of the study of knowledge, and I'm not I, you know I'm not going to get into that. How do we? How certain are we about what we know? Particularly when it comes to truth in uh, this current current environment, because much of what we get, where we get our information from will determine our bias regarding that information. And we all have a bias. We have an informed bias. 
whether we care to admit it or not, we have a bias that hinders us from fully apprehending truth. But we get we get pockets of truth, but it's not fully accurate, you know. So um, when we watch social media, when we're on social media, Twitter in particular, Facebook in particular, and these uh, these outlets provide stories that we just regurgitate, uh, oftentimes without even reading or validating the source material, and we just share and share and share. I'm, I'm gonna tell you, I I get. Tired, and I've had to block a few folks <laughs> because they were sharing and sharing and sharing things that, and I had to tell them, said, "No, this is false, and no, this isn't correct." And you know, you can all you can do now is just do a simple Google search, and um, there's a website, Snopes, and Snopes is fairly well recognized and as a, a fact checking fact checking website. Um, sometimes it's 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 not a hundred percent, and so I'm not going. I wouldn't dare endorse it and say, "Hey, this is always credible." But it, it is a credible site, but um, it it does miss the mark every now and then. But sometimes all you gotta do is just do a Google search. I'll never forget uh, <laughs> uh, the year that um, Mandela Nelson Mandela died. Oh well, that he got ill um, for. All over my social media, it was just reported that he was dead, and I did not research it. I shared a story saying that he was dead without researching it, and I had to, um, I had to take that post down because it was not accurate. And then there are always the the death hoaxes. <laughs> this is what gets me. <laughs> I, I mean, people were sharing. But we'll share stories of celebrity deaths without investigating it. It just shared, 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 and and I I would get them and I'm like, no, this is in this is not true. And all you gotta do sometimes is look at the source material when you look at a link that is shared on someone's page. All you gotta do, if it's you know, if it says CBS dot com, that that probably could be fairly fairly. Uh, Fairly verifiable, you know, reliable source. But if it has CBS dot um, US or dot org or whatever it may be, <laughs> that probably isn't a fair, uh, reliable source. And and also these these sometimes these links are traps. You know, they they. Uh, they gather information. They expect you to click. They they put these crazy headlines and expecting you to click on the link. And when you click on the link, you, of course, they now have access to your information. They can share it. They can sell it. They can do whatever. Um, and you still share without ver- verifying it. And uh, that's a great problem. But how much of the truth do we know? And and. Be honest with you, we don't have an answer to that. We do not know full truth, even in our own life. I find that I have found this to be true when um, recalling stories from my childhood. I have, I have fond memories of childhood and fond, vivid memories of childhood that I have strongly believed to be accurate. And was sharing that memory with friends from my childhood who have similar memories, but they remember it differently. And so my version would not be the same as theirs or the, you know, <laughs> the events and my version. I might be the hero. I might be the good guy <laughs> and, the, and their version. They're the hero and they're the good guy. And so even within our own self, truth becomes subjective. And subjective to our vantage point, our bias to our our sense of ownership in it. We want to own our own story. And because we want to own our own story, we can manipulate that story however we wish to as long as key components are in there. And um, there was recently a U.S. representative, I'm not going to say that person's name, uh, when presented with... Um, the truth 
and the facts that have been verified, validated, and everything regarding a particular issue. Uh, this this uh, congressperson simply said, well, that may be the fact, but we need to not just look at the facts, but we need to stick to the, you know, we should look at the overall narrative. In other words, the facts might be the facts, but we want the narrative to be this way, and this is how we're going to interpret it, and this is how we're going to regurgitate it to our particular audience. This is how we're going to spin it. And uh, news outlets have mastered this. They have mastered the art of spinning uh, truth, facts. <laughs> and uh, as we now, it has come into our, it's been done so much now, it's coming to our vernacular as alternative facts we have now known now know how to use alternative facts now when i grew up facts were facts you know and findings were findings you know you could dispute it by doing another you know researching deeper but for the most part you know you generally if you disagreed uh, particularly when it came to research, the scientific method, you know, you would go and uh, replicate that. And if you came up with the same findings, then you validate it. And, you know, that's how it works. But in the world that we live in today, facts don't matter. The facts don't matter. And because the facts don't matter, um, that's just simply a, a different form of, of truth. It's just a different form of truth. It's not necessarily not the truth, but it isn't quite the truth either. And when that makes our interaction, particularly on social media, very difficult. I, I learned this, you know, the subjectivity of interpretation of truth and statements, of declarative statements in particular, through texting. <laughs> you never you never think you would learn something through texting. <laughs> I I was texting with a friend and I made a statement and sent it out and you know didn't have any exclamation points or any any um any um what is what's it called? <laughs> punctuation marks. Oh my god. <laughs> didn't have any punctuation marks, right? And so the person on the receiving end did not know how to properly uh, receive the text message. And um, I'm sure they ponder it for a while. And before long, they responded it's like, did you mean such and such? Like, no, I didn't mean such and such. I meant what I text. And then I went back and I read through the text. And I was like, oh, I can see why that person would believe or perceive it to be one way when it was not. But when it comes down to the truth, you know, particularly as a pastor and as an interpreter of scripture, my job is to, my job week after week is to present um, scripture in a way that is truthful, that is reliable, and that is intentional with the purpose of converting persons to the faith of Christianity, the faith of Christ, of the Christ. So, I, I, I don't try to spin it. You know, I don't have to put a spin on it. But there are so many people who do, and it works for them for whatever reason. And we now we 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 find, for example, in the black community, we're we're developing, we're seeing a new faction uh, come up with the black Hebrew Israelites and these young men. Are buying into this idea that black folk are the ancient Jews and we're the true Israelites and we're the true Hebrews and blah 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 yada yada yada. Of course, we know that's not the case, uh, <laughs> but they're buying into it by the thousands, and it they also integrate uh, an overarching sense of um, anger, racism, bigotry. Um, all kinds of stuff into it. And these young men, these young black men are buying into it because it's giving them a sense of validation. It's telling them that they matter and they are not this and the church has only, you know, weakened the black community and, 
and you know to be a real black man you need to identify as this and they present that in a way that sounds truthful because the presentation is you know uh is how a lot of people converted you know they presented like man you did you're not empowered you're not liberated you're not this because you've been you've been told a lie by the church and because you've been told a lie by the church you need to get out the church and you need to become a black hebrew israelite and it's the same with other cults and other uh non cults <laughs> anyway it's 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 the same the same premise presenting truth in a way that is uh disenfranchising to those persons who are not fully engaged in finding truth and you know a lot of times these guys will read scriptures and they themselves are not well trained in in articulating especially you know the art of interp- uh, interpreting scripture and sometimes they just read it at face value take it in literal sense and go from there and there are a lot of people that do that and same thing when it comes to um information altogether you know, when you take information at face value and you don't dig deeper, then you will find that you are more uh, subject to being misled and misinformed. There was a, um, there's a YouTube uh, channel I strongly recommend. It's called Crash Course. Sponsored by, um, Crash Course is sponsored by a group in, um, Indiana, I believe. I can't think of it. But it's hosted by John Green, who's both an author and um, he's a YouTube blogger. And um, this particular course, Crash Course, dealt with um, uh, how to how to use digital media, or how to interpret digital media, something to that nature. I can't recall it. But you can simply Google Crash Course Digital Media and I'm sure it will come up. You can see. But I strongly recommend that. Because it helps you understand. How um, digital media. Social media. And all that involved in that. Influences us. To be misinformed. Or can enable us. To be better informed. If we understand how to. um, To interpret it. And read through it. And all that. And one of the things he talked about. Was reading laterally. And. And reading or. Surfing the web laterally. And doing that. This is what he suggests. That by. If you come across a particular link. So. And you find that the link is pretty credible. Or a story. Or headline is pretty. You know. For example. We know Michael Jackson died or and the prince died so if more than one news source reports it then you can say that that is a credible story if there are only one news say fox news publishes a story about uh president trump now the other news outlets may publish a similar story but according to their bias, the information presented within the body of that story may not be the same. Because the initial, the only thing that may be the same is the uh, the main intent of the story. So, let's say President Trump uh, decides to build a wall. Okay, so the headlines, 9 times 10, are going to always include the, the headline, Trump Builds Wall. The body is where the misinformation is is presented or the varying information or the, uh, conflicting information or <laughs> the you know, that's where it's presented. Because one, Fox, which is uh, pretty much um, pro-Trump, and then the other media outlets, mainstream media outlets, are usually biased against Trump. So um, while they may articulate the entirety of the main narrative, which is the wall, the the underlying support of the main narrative will be different. 
And so so by reading laterally, you, you get a broader understanding of what each source material is presenting and where their bias lies in their presentation. Now, the average person doesn't do that. The average person only goes from one source and takes that one source and runs with it. And that, you know, that that is where the problem lies when it comes to accessing truth or sharing truth or facts. Um, and we don't do that. Also, we don't do it in our personal engagements with each other. We we don't we don't really go out and vet each other as we should, you know, sometimes because it amazes me. I hear stories of couples who live together, be together 30, 40 years and their spouse or significant other has a secret that they had no idea about <laughs> because they don't really fully engage. And that's understandable. You know, sometimes the, the person can have an affair that goes on for years and the other partner is unaware of it. Or if they are aware of it, they're unaware of the totality of it. You understand what I'm saying? And that is a problem that must be addressed. Um, but going back to this, when it comes to social engagement, particularly uh, within the confines of social media, we not we must not only just access this, but we must be able to in- interpret it and 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 present this truthfully, because uh, there is a lot of disinformation. Intentional disinformation and misinformation presented to us, and when you just when you're just online sharing stuff and sharing stuff and sharing stuff, um, and you're not vetting the source, you're contributing to that. Which is why the Pro Truth Pledge, as I stated earlier, that I signed, and I encourage you to go there again. Go to Pro Truth, um, Pro Truth. Pledge.org and you can go and you can see what it's all about. And I encourage you to sign it. Um, it's all about responsibility. Our responsibility. Our responsibility to be uh, not misinformed. To intentionally engage the things that we see when we are trying to share truth. One verifier. We want to... Uh, we want clarity. We want to be able to cite sources accurately and definitely. With, but but we also want balance. We want to be able to say that um, where what we're sharing, particularly again within the, the realm of social media, is balanced. And we want to honor truth. We want to be able to honor truth. We want to be able to say that there is a truth that is definitive um, and absolute. When it comes to stories, when it comes to news stories, when it comes to social media stories and all of that. We want to say that it's a truth, absolute truth. For example, with my life, there's an absolute truth. My absolute truth is my name is Lorenzo T. Neal. You ain't got to know what the T stands for. <laughs> but that is an absolute truth about myself. That will not ever change. Even if I change my name. My original birth name will remain the same. That will be the truth about me. Because when I die, they may print. If I change my name, they will print my change name. But they're going to state that I was born with this name. And I can get into other arguments about that. But I I, I don't even want to go there right now. <laughs> I'm not going there. Um, uh, another absolute truth about me is that I wear corrective lenses i wear glasses that's absolute truth but i can replace those glasses with other corrective lenses such as contacts and if i really want to get bold i can replace those contacts with color contacts so i can change my eye color and i can change um the corrective lens that i wear but the absolute truth is that I will still be wearing corrective lenses, <laughs> you know, unless I qualify for LASIK surgery. <laughs> and then I will not be wearing corrected lenses, but my l- eye lens itself will have been corrected. 
but I would still have been born with the necessity to wear a corrective lens. <laughs> another absolute truth. Another absolute truth is that I have a dog <laughs> named Jackson. Uh, my dog is a mixed breed. Some would say he's a mutt. <laughs> but I have a dog named Jackson. That is my pet. But what I will say is true. I call him my child because I, I don't have any children. So I treat him like a child. <laughs> I relate to him as a child. And, and every now and then I've heard myself call him son. And he responds as if he understands. But I know, and it's an absolute truth, that he is a pet. He is a dog. He is not my child. And that while he is responding to me, he is not responding to me because he is absolute in his relationship to me. But because he's a pet. <laughs> and he's been trained to respond to me in that capacity. And while I may interpret some of the things that he does... Or the the sounds that he he makes, I may interpret them within the constraints and framework of human understanding and behavior and sound. It's just barking, really, you know. So he barks when he wants something, and I interpret that and understand it. Like when he want water, his water bowl is is empty, and he wants me to pour water. He recognizes what a cup is. He'll bark to the cup. Knowing that I will recognize that him barking at the cup is him telling me he wants water. That's absolute. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I said all that for us to understand the great need for uh, truth in our, in our life, in our engagement with one another. We're not ever going to know full truth. We're not going to know it all. Absolute truth. Even within our um, religious constructs, we uh, have not settled on absolute truth. And with more persons believing in the flat earth, uh, they are questioning absolute truth regarding certain laws of physics and stuff like that. So we won't have a full grasp on that, even if we believe we do. But what we can do... And what we should be doing is encouraging all people to think. Tell them and encourage them to think. Enable them to think for themselves, to be free thinkers. Enable them to be skeptical. And there's no harm in being skeptical. There's no harm in being free thinking. I think it's liberating. And even if you are a believer in Christ... You know, you're not to be conformed to the world, but you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is how we should be. And I believe when we do that, we do so in an empowering way, liberating way. Listen, I, as I get ready to go out of here, I want to thank you all for your support. Um, all that you do and every bit of support you give helps me to continue with this program. Uh, if you'd like to support me, you can go to patreon.com. And slash Lorenzo T. Neal, patreon.com slash Lorenzo Neal, uh, T. Neal, and you will, you can subscribe, you can uh, become a patron for as low as a dollar a month, or however you will, and we will offer opportunities and um, gifts to you who subscribe to more. Also, you can also support me on PayPal. Um, you can support me, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, financially, however you can, you should do so. We have another book that will be coming out shortly. It's actually uh, Reflections from Pastor's Notes or something like that. I can't remember the working title, but it, <laughs> it's sad. But that should be coming out shortly. Go to LorenzoTNeal.com and you can pre-order for that. And also, um, if you um, subscribe, we may be giving you uh, we'll double that and give you a copy of uh, Preaching the Family along with that. But we support, appreciate all of your support. Uh, help me uh, to make the world a better place. Uh, so follow me on on Twitter at LorenzoTNeal.com. 
support me on Lorenzo T. Oh, that's my webpage. I just gave Lorenzo T. Neal dot com. But at Twitter, on Twitter at Lorenzo T. Neal. And any other social media I might be on, we encourage you to follow us. And um, we thank you in advance for all you're doing. Thank you so much. And this is Dr. Lorenzo T. Neal. And we will out until next time. Lord be with you.